This episode of Rebel Talk is brought to you by Rebel Tech. Human stories for startups. Rebel Shrebel, you've talked your dress. Rebel Shrebel, your face is a mess. Rebel Shrebel, how could they go? Hot trap! Putting car in space is a great stunt, but I think Musk has got a lot of problems with putting cars on people's driveways. Because, you know, we can't all be world changers, but we can, a lot of us, more of us can be world improvers. Rebel Shrebel, you talk your dress. Rebel Shrebel, your face is a mess. Rebel Shrebel, how could they know? Hot track, I love you so. Hello and welcome to Rebel Talk. If you're a first-time listener, this is a podcast that celebrates rebels across every walk of life. Each episode, we talk to changers and troublemakers whose predilection for bending rules drives progress, change and transformation. I'm your host, Mark Schwakey, and today I'm joined by Kate Bevan, technology magazine editor, just, very new. Very new. Uh, Computer nerd, not very new. Not very new. And professional social media ranter on behalf (laughs) of both herself and a terrifyingly popular cat named Daphne, who's got almost as many Twitter followers as me, I found, (laughs) yesterday. She's got nearly 2,000. Oh, it's her cat flap, to be absolutely fair. Her her, cat flap is, yeah. Her cat flap's on Twitter and she herself is on Facebook. Kate's career reads like a who's who of UK media, with roles at the BBC, the FT, the Guardian, the Telegraph Group, where we met, Mm -hmm. and Witch Computing, where she's currently the editor. Kate, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's amazing that you're here, because you've just gone to press for the first time as editor of Witch Computing. I have, and I'm absolutely delighted about it. It's amazing to have a team of subs and a production editor and an art editor as well. It's it's like, oh, I'd forgotten what that's like. It's fantastic. When you get to be editor for the first few weeks, and you're not sure what you want to change, change so you just want everybody to do their bit and you're just going to write the column and do that exactly yeah, lovely. that's what it's been like and i've now spent a couple of weeks also boxing off my next issue because we're bi-monthly so only every other month so i've got lots of lovely lead time to think about what i want to think who i want to write it mm. but i actually sat down and drew up a flat plan for the august issue yesterday it's like oh god i haven't done a flat plan for years i love a flat plan i love me a good flat plan too yeah so your twitter bio reads on telly and radio from time to time true true Sweary and a bit ranty, sometimes not safe for work. Also true. Right. So I, along with other followers, know that you're rarely safe for work. So we're going to have a swear jar today. Okay. Because between you and me, we could corrupt the whole of society. We could. I'm quite good at not swearing in front of microphones, so it's part of my core skill set. Yeah, Yeah, but you're not very good at then translating onto social media where you... (laughs) What was the last thing that you congratulated somebody for calling Trump a couple of days ago? Oh, um, a drunken fuckapotamus. A drunken fuckapotamus. Which I thought was amazing. I'm going to put one in as there's, well. There's the swear jar. Um, I've been asked to swear less <laughs> on this podcast series uh, by some, and by others I've been asked to swear a bit more. So something you and I spoke about um, a couple of weeks ago on Facebook, actually, was um, Silicon Valley geniuses doing something oh, useful. Oh, God, yeah. Reinvent the boiler, for God's sake. Stop reinventing buses and uh, you know, neighbourhood stores. Just sort out bloody boilers, please. Yeah, or indeed cancer. Or indeed cancer. You know, rather than putting a car in space. Putting cars in space is a great stunt, but I think Musk has got a lot of problems with putting cars on people's driveways. Yeah, there was a, a tweet once I saw you. Um, I saw you commenting on this, so I sent you a screenshot of a tweet I'd seen like the day before, saying, "You know, all these guys, these entrepreneurs who want to make a dent in the world, there's plenty of dents still to fix." You know. Yeah, exactly that. 
exactly that. Fix some of the dents as well as, because, you know, we can't all be world changers, but we can, a lot of us, more of us can be world improvers. Do you have a view on the startup community and the things that you see in the, either on one hand, the adventurous and the adventurousness and the spirit and the gung-ho, stupid, chaotic, but ultimately uplifting hopes and dreams of of moving society on against kind of a load of children in a playpen spending a load of money and wearing plaid shirts and converse just messing around the startup community has come up with amazing technology that we absolutely take for granted now like you know we wouldn't have mobile phones without google having started for example we wouldn't have all kinds of things yeah you and i wouldn't be sitting here if mark zuckerberg hadn't wanted to come up with some kind of network for students but i also see a lot of arrogance and toxicity and being a woman in tech is hard and I would really like to see Silicon Valley being a little bit more not performatively humble but actually humble. When we've spoken to women in tech before and we asked the question a lot of them I don't know how you feel about this tend to say I don't want to talk about women in tech I don't want to talk about me being a woman in tech I want to talk about what I do don't bring it up. That's a really fair viewpoint and I certainly don't want to talk for all women in tech but I think it's one of the things I talk a lot about is representation, diversity and the talent pool. I mean I kind of take my lead from Cindy Gallup who is just one of my heroes. Cindy takes absolutely no shit about The woman that blows shit up. The woman (laughs) blows shit up, she really does. Um, I think it's really important to talk about the talent pool and that by definition means we talk about diversity because if your talent pool is just dudes, white, middle-class dudes who went to, well, in the UK, if you went to Oxford or Cambridge, that's what journalism is. If it's, um, you know, a particular type of white middle-class dude or in Silicon Valley, you are excluding talent and we need to talk about the talent pool and the better the talent pool is, the better the businesses will be, the better the products Mm. will be and the better the world will be. But also I see that where you're excited about tech and you love new things and progression mm. and transformation and startup community in that sense, I've never seen you f- walk away from an argument about Uber. You've got your moral compass guiding you all the time. So your your view on it, I mean, I, I think I don't can't remember if we spoke about this the last time we met. I I would disappoint you because I feel the same about the Uber toxicity as you do, but still take Uber because it's just too easy, just too convenient. I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. Um, I'm, I will point out to you that Uber's a toxic company. Uber has flooded, certainly, our streets with way too many cars. I don't think Uber's a good company to work for. I don't, wouldn't trust it with data. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I'm just going to give you tools to make decisions. Do you believe that the new guy might uh, turn it round and, and, and uh, anti-Kalanick it? I hope so. Um, that doesn't take away the fact that Uber still throws its weight about in, in cities. But they all do, right? Google. They do. I mean, they do. everybody does. I think there's... I mean, I sound like I'm particularly focusing on Uber. I think there's a particular problem with Uber in that if you look at the stats for the number of private hire vehicles on the road in London, it's gone through the roof. Mm. Um, at the same time, I think it's maybe a correlation rather than a cause, there's a massive hole in TfL's public finances because it's cheaper for people to get in a car. Now, four people in a car is not as efficient as 40 people on a bus. And we are clogging our cities, we are making the pollution worse, and I think we are storing up trouble with that. So that's it's an issue of living in cities for me about Uber. The stuff about it being a toxic company, I hope he's going to turn that around, I really do, and I'll be pleased if he does. I still don't think I'm going to use Uber. When I was at Qubit and we were talking to great big enterprise companies and um, about the need to address customer experience mm. so make it easier make it quicker more make it more attractive or you're just gonna fall behind and all that stuff 
one of the things I've, I used to I used to talk about was probably not in my lifetime, but certainly in my children's lifetime, I can see a time when the ratio between great big legacy corporate companies that have to move slow because they're so big that currently rule any economy mm-hmm. in terms of volume and number against tiny little agile startups that just are flexible and fast enough to keep evolving to the customer. That's going to equal out and possibly even see startups going further and doing more and creating more wealth and uh, commanding more of an economy than but I'm know, not sure that's necess- is that is that is that not true is that I don't know if that's true or not I'm not sure that's necessarily a good thing as I mean like, for example we have record numbers of people in in employment right now and that's held to be a really good thing a good metric of success but a lot of those jobs are really insecure they're not jobs they're gigs they're hand to mouth stuff people aren't very confident they're trying to make ends meet in big, expensive cities. And a lot of that is fueled by the startup community. So Uber drivers, um, TaskRabbit, uh, people who do stuff for you, um, Airbnb hosts, it's very hand-to-mouth. So I'm not sure I want to see that happen, actually. I want to see... Do you think that's the right way round, though? Because I, before you said it, my assumption would have been, actually, the economy's really hard, things are really tough, and anyone using entrepreneurial wit skills flexibility to make some money somewhere to, to take home and put on the table for kids and stuff is is, is a good thing yes it is but only as far as it goes because also we have responsibility to the younger people in us in our society sorry the weaker people in our society we are part of a bigger thing mm-hmm. it's not just about feeding our own families um buying our own you know diet cokes or our own bottles of whiskey or whatever or or buying our next holiday Society doesn't work unless we are all part of it. That sounds really trite, but my concern is the pivot has gone very much towards this. Silicon Valley is a very libertarian place. I have some understanding of me. One of my biggest mates is um, Mark Littlewood at the IEA. So I am exposed to a certain amount of libertarian thinking and I can hear where he's coming from. I hear where they're coming from. But I also want a world in which it's okay to be old. It's okay to be to have mental health issues and not be able to work for a while it's okay to be sick where you're not going to fall through the cracks if you aren't constantly out there keeping these silicon valley companies Mm. in rolling in money by your small labors it's a shame when you know when google and facebook and all these things started coming they had a natural shine to them they had a natural pr glow everybody got behind them and admired their bravery and also their products and it was a now they seem as corporate and as sinister at times as uh, some of the some of the they're, some certain, of the I mean, they're certainly as corporate as IBM or any yeah. of the sort of the big legacy companies um, and don't let anybody tell you they're not because that's a mythology that they are happy to promote they're also I think not a, even as good corporate citizens as somebody like an IBM who has a presence in a country with a tax with a tax yeah, yeah. I mean I, is tax the be all and end all I don't know but we have to find a way of the big companies who suck up the products of the education that we pay for for people the infrastructure we all pay for and don't contribute back to it how's it been so far back in full-time work because you've been freelance for as long as i've known you anyway yeah um, it's a bit of a shock to the system having to get up and go to an office every day Mm. on the tube and the cat is not very pleased about being left on her own for five how's she doing She's pleased when I get home and she's a bit uh, reproachful, shall we say. Mm. I mean, I know I sound like a crazy cat lady, but she's a character in her own right these days. I work with some crazy cat people. (laughs) Um, And uh, I'm currently fielding a campaign (laughs) that they've put to me about stress and why don't we have one in the office and blah, blah, blah. Uh, It's not going to happen. But 
what I wanted to talk to you about, which is, is obviously a consumer champion. Yeah. How does that fit with your own personal outlook and values? When I applied for the job, I pitched it as saying one of the things I really care about is explaining things to people and giving them the tools to make up their own minds about things. I think we are quite bad at just being spoon-fed bits of narrative and we are guilty of swallowing bits of narrative whole and not thinking about them. So that applies to all sorts of things, including technology advice. People say, what should I get? What should I buy? Should I get this? Should I get that? And I always come and say, well, what do you need? What do you? Ha- what kind of money do you have to spend? What do you want to do with it? And so what I've always done is helped people, I hope, give them the tools to make their own decisions. And so that kind of fits very nicely with the job. You're advanced tech. I'm not tech. Then there's people who are tech. Mm-hmm. And you're advanced tech. You've got probably, I sometimes have read your social media accounts and looked at the stuff that you're doing in your home, linking up things that shouldn't be linked to other things and taking things apart. And put, how do you fit your deep, deep level of technical knowledge and expertise and bring it to the level where you can explain, frankly, for our, our grandparents how to use a computer. Is that not frustrating for you? Is it? No, it's actually it's a really interesting challenge. There's a really comprehensive help desk at which and I have access to the kind of questions that are being asked there which give me some guidance but I also it's just from what I see around me what I hear people talking about what I see my friends talking about what I read elsewhere it's like oh we could do with explaining that so I'll give you an example not for August but for October I'm going to commission a piece I'll probably write it myself actually on AI now we think of AI as a big complex, new, out-there technology. But actually, it's not. It's already on your phone, and it will be increasingly on your phone, on your devices, and it will increasingly drive decisions that are made about you. And there are ways of explaining that that really bring that home for people. So my sort of classic example of that is I get my phone out, which is an Android phone, and I say, because you know, all my pictures of the cat at home, basically. So I say, hey, Google, show me pictures of the cat with a computer. And it will go through my pictures and very quickly bring up all the pictures of the cat with a computer. None of those are tagged. It's past the pictures in real time. You're living in a bubble of people like you who talk... Your cat uses a computer, Kate. <laughs> she, well, she has her own tablet, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, um, but you know, if, she's, if she's sitting on a computer that I want to get at, yeah. for example. Uh, so that's a really good example. So, of how- so is, your, is your mission to make sure that we're not scared of AI, that we know how to productively use it? and So that we know how it's being used already. And so, that, again, we're not scared of it is a good way of putting it. So that we know that it's already on our devices, it's coming to our devices, it's there to do things for you, to ease paths for you. So it might succeed at that. It might not. We don't know. Mm. But it is right there. It is on in the technology you're going to be using next year, maybe even this year if you're buying new kit. It's part of my job to help you understand that. In a column, Kate, you once wrote, you can't really claim true geek cred until you've built a PC. How many PCs have you built? In Only the one. Well, well, one and a half, really. I built that one with an old boyfriend of mine, and I still use it. It's a great PC. And then I've got a, a little thing that's called an Intel Nook. It's a little one like that, and it comes kind of half-made, so you just have to slot bits into it. It's a bit like Meccano. So one and a half. So I'd do you say. buy stuff and make it smarter in your home by doing things to it? Are you a... I'm not a coder. I don't have the coding skills, but what I'm quite good at is putting tools together to make them work. 
Because lots of people we meet through Rebeltech like to claim geek status. I mean, it's they they hold their geek credentials up front. They sort of almost open meetings with. I, I find it very strange. They open meetings with the words, "I'm a total geek." And I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to establish themselves and put themselves in a place where we all know what they're interested in. They don't let the conversation happen so that that just uh, comes out. It's become that thing. It's become something that somebody wants to boast about. You're a true geek, though, inside and out. How did you get here? How did you become interested in technology. Where, where did it come from? I grew up with it. My dad was writing software in the 60s. Um, some of my dad's code lives on in airline booking systems that he literally wrote in the 60s. He was involved in the first online banking in Bank of Montreal in the 70s when we lived in Canada. He had a smart home in, I think it was, must have been 19... 19- 1979 he had a smart home so I've grown up with it it was always part of what was around me what were you doing in Canada my dad worked for IBM um, and so we moved there when I was six and we were there until I was 12 so we lived in Montreal Vancouver and Toronto and because my dad was there how was that it was great I mean I it's a long time ago so I have a kind of perspective of nearly half a century ago looking back on it but it was a nice childhood you know we lived in and particularly in Vancouver we lived in Horseshoe Bay which is now really expensive and really upmarket but we had a nice low slung house above the bay I had lots of friends around went to a local school it was a nice childhood and I still have Canadian citizenship what kind of um what, what does a smart home in 1979-1980 look well, like? Well, we were back in London by then, um, and my dad was divorced and living in a flat in South Kensington, which was really cheap in those days. And he had an Apple II, which was one of these little computers like this, mm. and he had the whole house hardwired to it with sensors on the windows, the doors and the radiators. And what he did with it was he controlled the temperature He was because he was really broke at the time. And so he wrote some software to control the temperature of the house to keep his heating bills down. He says it saved him a fortune. So you grew up with all this stuff around you. Did you... I don't know what your childhood was like compared to mine. My my tech childhood was Commodore 64, <laughs> Daily Thompson. I'm older um, than you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was um, a teenager when that was happening. What, what, what's the... Um, what, did you grow up thinking, this is what I want to do? Or... No, I wouldn't say that I did. I don't know what I wanted to do. Um, I sort of landed in journalism slightly by accident. Um, and then I, again, I fell into tech journalism slightly by accident. But it made absolute sense when I started doing it because it was just part of who I was, what I was doing. It wasn't preordained by your relationship with Dad or anything else? Well, I don't believe in predestination, so no. But I suppose it makes sense. I mean, my brother is a Linux guru for banks. You know, he's a systems admin and a senior one at that. My sister has run websites and stuff. So we grew up with it. So as a kid, were you a rebel? I mean, look, by the way, I'm, mm. I've invited you here to talk to us because you are one of the most truly rebellious people I know. And we'll get to that later. But did, did, as a kid, were you cheeky, mischievous? Or did you talk back? Did you, you know, fight the power? Or, or were you just quite a you know, good little child, well-behaved? You'd have to ask my mum that question, I think, and the people I was at school with. I don't know. I mean, Do you remember fashion- getting into trouble at school? It's such a long time ago. Not getting into trouble as such. I mean, it's fashionable to say, oh, I didn't run with the crowd. I didn't particularly. I was probably slightly an awkward kid. I wasn't an unhappy kid. I was quite a happy kid. I liked doing my own thing, I think is probably the best way to say it. I've always liked doing my own thing. Yeah. And I don't... I love having people around me and I need people around me, but also I'm really happy 
and quite confident in doing my own thing. Does that make me a rebel? I don't. Well, I'll tell you what I think makes you a rebel. There isn't an argument that you'll back off from. Oh, there are lots of arguments I'll back off from. Well, I look at. I, I, I watch you. I've, we've known each other for, I don't know, 10, 10 years, years or something. something like that, yeah. yeah. And I've, I've watched you, and there isn't an argument you'll back off if you truly believe there's a right to be wrong. Or Even if, if it I, means going against the, the conventional wisdom of the crowd. Yeah. Um, if I'm, I'm confident in my opinions, I'm happy to wade in most of the time. Sometimes you just look at it and you go, can I be bothered with this today? I don't think so. And you just scroll past it because actually I'm getting to an age where I I have a theory that you're born with a fine... You nearly reached for the swear, John. I'm, going, then, I'm about to reach for it because <laughs> I'm going to give you my best theory on this. I have a theory we're born with a finite number of fucks to give. Yeah. And I'm reaching the age where I'm kind of running a bit low on fucks. Yeah. So I pass. I I, I spend them. I spend them carefully. Uh, you talk about social media. Um, you you talk about scroll and yep. and scrolling, with all the pro- the problems being uh, that social media is currently charged with. Right. Mm-hmm. So mental health, depression, loneliness, and also, you know, putting putting huge, sort of bringing to light huge swathes of society and, and divides and giving people the excuse to hide behind identities. And Does tech still excite you? Yes, it does. Um, you know, I think we are learning that tech, that well, that anything, any progress comes with an ethical framework that we need to get our heads around and we need to talk about and that it has impacts at we don't necessarily foresee and that we need to understand and mitigate as we go along. So I'm really excited by the super cool robotics, for example. I mean, I know everybody went, yikes, when they saw the video of the Boston Dynamics dogs opening doors. And I was just looking at that going, holy fuck, that's amazing. Because this was all being done on the fly. These were working out in three dimensions and in real time how to open the door, how much force to exert on pulling it. That first said it needed pulling, not pushing. How to hold it open, how long to hold it open for. I'm really excited by that. But at the same time, I'm aware that it scares people, that there's a a whole sci-fi horror thing of, oh, my God, the robots are sentient, which actually they're not. But it's it makes you think about it. So there is an ethical framework around all tech that I think we need to be very cognizant of. Mm. And do you and do you think social media um, is still a force for good? Yes, broadly, because at its best, and there's a lot that's bad about it, but at its best, it helps people find each other. It helps tribes find each other. I mean, I remember growing up when, you know, seeing gay people was surprising and unusual. And there's a whole generation of gay kids, of trans kids, of genderqueer kids, of non-binary kids who found each other, all sorts of communities, kink communities, the the poly communities, they've all found each other. And I think that's a tremendous force for good in helping bring marginalised people to the centre and to find each other and to find strength in numbers. Mm. And also in individual connections, like you and I are in touch because of social media. We'd have lost touch otherwise. Yeah. I think that's tremendous, actually. And I think that's something that people tend to forget and lose sight of. At first, I reckon social media felt like a universal democratizer. Mm-hmm. It gave everybody a voice, mm-hmm. and and as an editor and as a journalist, I've I've argued for it in the past. But later, I I think it might have done for much of the newsroom. I think it has done for the newsroom, and I think we are only just coming to terms with how news is going to look 
in the future. I mean, Facebook and Google have eaten the advertising. Uh, they are the main platforms, particularly Facebook is the main platform by which people get their news. So we are not the gatekeepers. We are not the mediators anymore. We are coming to terms with what that means and how we not necessarily take it back, but how we go forward and inject some quality back into journalism. Yeah, I, I think the first thing that it did was get get dangerous for subs mm-hmm. with the job of fact-checking, yep. of ethics, of responsibility. I think it then, you know, the rise of citizen journalism was a question for all of us back in the day. Uh, yeah. Because, well... I mean, I mean, what's your take? Is it better for a universal democratic voice, or is it better for people with training and and uh, the way we had to study in the, at the beginnings of our careers? So, libel laws and ethics and that duty of of regard for for fact checking is that is that all gone? I mean, I think what I'm about to say probably doesn't pass the Mandy Rice-Davis test because I've been a journalist for thirty years. But I think journalism is important. I think the the standards around journalism, the skills, the professionalism, the ethics are really important. And I think we've seen what happens when that isn't understood or treated with, uh, treated as important by blogs like Squawk Box, The Canary, which, you know, are an interesting phenomenon. I don't think they've been very good for democracy or for public discourse. Um, so, yes, I think journalism is extremely important. But as I say, I'm not sure that passes the Mandy Rice-Davis test. She would say that, wouldn't she? But what's what's the future though? Because I mean, you've just got a job mm-hmm. after working at um, several of the big papers and seeing some of the same faces go round and yep. some of the same skills being safeguarded and, and 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 you know all the people with a responsibility to inform us and and give us that give us that sense of uh, of power and responsibility. And it's the first time you you're now in charge. Do you do you plan to do anything differently now? You're now you've got the team and you've got the reins. Differently in what way? Well, the first time I was an editor Mm-mm. at Marketing Week. Yeah. It wasn't, wasn't the first time I was, a, I was an editor. It was the first time I was an editor of something, mm. with all respect to whatever else, yeah. quite big. And um, it took a reporter that I didn't actually have a great relationship with to remind me that I was the editor and what it meant. So I was on the phone to somebody uh, apologising for something. And she was sat next to me and she wrote me a note while I was on the phone. She said, stop apologising. You're the editor. And it was the first time it kind of came to me, I think. It was the first big job I'd had. Mm. First time I'd go, do you know what? I am, the, I, I am the editor. I have to... It's not just about doing the job anymore. It's about making sure I'm representing this and everybody and everything else. Have you got a plan to to transform or is, is which computing a job where you're just going to keep it going? No, I mean, I've got a job to do there because at the moment it's just a print product and it's very narrowly focused on its current audience, which is big but elderly. I mean, it's, you know, it's, our, well, it's not my grandparents' age because my grandparents are long gone, but it's your grandparents' age. It's probably actually people my age and up. Um, so- I definitely think you think I'm younger than I am. <laughs> You're good, Teddy's younger than I am. Uh, my job is to expand that audience. And how I do that, as, as also a sort of representative of which, um, I'm still thinking about that. There's some, there's some obvious things we can do. Um, it's not digital at all at the moment, the actual content of the magazine. We can make it more digital. We're talking about a PR strategy to get our stories told more widely because there have been some great stories in which computing that just don't see the light of day. They only go to the magazine circulation. And I don't think that's a second best thing, but we can do we can add to that as well as having that amazing audience. We can have a, another amazing audience outside the confines of the magazine. So that's my job there. It feels like a big responsibility because which is an extraordinary brand name. Mm. And I have 
a responsibility not to trash that brand name in any way, to do things that are appropriate, to do things that grow it, to do things that take which, as an organisation, forward the next 10 years, which is how long I'd like to stay there. Are they going to let you be not safe for work? Are they going to let you be Kate Bevan outside of work? Yeah, they already are, actually, because it's one thing they hired me for. Really? Yeah. So even with the audit, the specific demographic you write for yeah. and the, the purity of the brand, you get to be Kate Bevan? I get to be Kate Bevan. I mean, I said, I don't want to put Witch in my Twitter bio. And they said, yeah, that's fine, because it gives you more scope to be who you are. Mm. And they were cool about that. Um, and they are delighted that I do bits of telly and radio. I have a really nice kind of arrangement with the PR team, which is when somebody comes to me asking, giving with a request, I say provisionally yes check in with the PR team let them know what I'm doing and they go terrific and they let me know if there are any bear traps with the internal politics that I could march into without knowing but basically we already have something nicely set up there a nicer modus operandi there so you're still going to be on our TVs yep in in the past was that about raising profile or was just earning earning a crust only a crust. I mean, it is only a crust because, you know, being um, an expert guest for four and a half minutes on BBC News is not going to make you rich. Yeah. In and of itself, it's a valuable thing to do because it's interesting to go and talk about this stuff and to take your knowledge out and into a platform where lots of people can yeah, can listen to you. Hey, that sounds really um, megalomaniac. But it's also, yeah, it was a brand building thing partly, but it was something I like doing. And so I'm not, I can now do that for which. So the PR team is delighted if I'm Has, Kate Bevan, editor of which Computing on Sky News. You know me, and it, this is not meant in any way to be anything but respectful. Why didn't? Why weren't you any of the, any of the people that you know so well at the BBC who present shows, present the news, present any of the specific um, editors? Why? What? Didn't you want to do that? No, don't want to do that. Why? Don't, don't want to be famous. You don't want to be famous. No, it, it, being famous is awful. I mean, he, back in the day, thirty years ago, I went up with somebody a bit famous. He was a presenter on a big consumer TV program, and I saw at fairly close up what it was like to be around somebody who was on telly quite a bit. I thought, yeah. Good Lord, I don't want that, thank you very much. And that was long before everything you did was scrutinised and dissected online. Um, I don't want that. Also, fame is really fickle. I don't wouldn't want to be flavour of the month and then dropped. I'm not sure my ego could cope with that. I'm quite fragile at times. Mm. So I'm very happy doing what I do. I want to be known and liked and respected by my peers. Yeah, and you are. And you I are. so. Yeah. Friend, I love you so. We have a section on, at the very end of our podcast, called The 60 Second Rebellion, which is a faster, quicker... Uh, you have to answer every question. Okay. Advice to your 16-year-old self. Don't be scared. Were you scared? Yes, probably. I think everybody's scared at 16, aren't they? Or at least I was. I was just stupid. <laughs> your 16-year-old self's advice to the grown-up you. Don't be pompous. You're given the power and money to solve one big global problem or one tiny, annoying, day-to-day, first-world problem. What big and small problem do you solve? The small problem is... People with backpacks on the tube. Taking a backpack on the tube will be punishable by death when I'm yeah. head of the world. The big problem, it sounds a bit cheesy, but there's been a lot of cancer around me in the past couple of years. Mm. Let's cure cancer. Mm. What are you most excited about? For myself, I'm excited about the fact that I'm fairly secure for the moment, so I've got the time and the space and the energy to think about doing a really good job at which and making the magazine good. More broadly, gosh, I'm not... I'm kind of more fearful at the moment, more broadly, actually. Uh, 
Trump pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal. I just read um, Ed Luce's piece in the FT the other day, which I've been putting off for a couple of days, about the ramifications, the impact of that. It's like, that's quite scary about what the fallout from that could be. And I'd be really excited if there was something come along that could just make everybody feel a bit safer. <laughs> uh, Kate Bevan, thank you for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Nicole Lyons, co-founder of Rebel Tech, uh, for post-match analysis. She is the reason I managed, with some debate, uh, maybe about how true this is, to get through my experience of national newspapers. She sat behind. She sat about two or three desks behind me. At some point, I was on the Sunday Telegraph business desk, yeah. and it was too big a leap from where I'd come from. It, I found it really, really frustrating to suddenly find I wasn't good at stuff and the stuff I wasn't good at was hard to get over it was being in a team of people that just didn't consider themselves a team at nationals I'd come from teams and at nationals you're not a team you're literally sitting next to people who are fighting you for the same space in a newspaper Mm -hmm. and are prepared to fight you and she was a freelance sub that came in, and she late Friday nights, late Saturday nights, that job was. I mean, it was all through the week, but for a Sunday morning paper, you'd be there till 11 o'clock on a Friday night and probably 11 or 12 o'clock on a Saturday night. And she, I couldn't shut her up. She was raveting on the whole time. <laughs> she has a nurture thing. She has a knowledge thing. She has a... Uh, she loves her cat. My God. The cat Meg, has a tablet. loves her cats. Yeah. Well, she loves cats. So I, I, I said to her, hey, look... Someone else loves cats. Have you ever seen Daphne on social? Daphne oh, is Kate's yes. cat. Oh, yes, 2,000 followers. This cat Same has... amount as you. No, I, I was being <laughs> kind. I've got more. <laughs> so I was being kind. I've got more than, more followers than that cat. I'm joking. But yeah. uh, the cat's oh. got its own tech. Did she say the, po- um, the cat has its own iPad? Yeah. <laughs> she, did, yeah. she did, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, at that point I was like pouring money into the swear jar. You know? Yeah, bing, bing, bing. Yeah, brilliant. Um, yeah, yeah. She, she is has always been utterly ranty, utterly sweary. She um, and she she was being modest there. She never does back down from. If you follow her on Facebook or mm. or Twitter, she just doesn't back down from an argument. She's angry, and I love it. That's all for this episode of Rebel Talk. I'm your host, Mark Schwakey. Thanks so much for joining us. My thanks also to our brilliant production team at Hard Six Audio to Spiritland and King's Cross for the beautiful studio, and to my Rebel Tech co-host Nicole Lyons and producer Meg Wright. Until next time, up the Rebels. Rebels, Rebel, your face is a mess. Rebels, Rebel, how could they know? Hot track, I love you so. Good night, listeners. <laughs> Just creepy.